So please look with me at Psalm 87 as we study this last sermon on the, the Great Commission. Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. I remember reading the book, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper as a youngster. It had a huge impact on my life and a big influence in leading Kerry and I to serve in India. But I remember where I was, I remember the place where I was sitting when I read these words, which I'm gonna be quoting for you from the book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He said, if you say that you love the glory of God, the test of your authenticity is whether you love the spread of that glory among the peoples of the world. He said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. God's passion is to be known and honored and worshiped among all the peoples. To worship him is to share that passion for his supremacy among the nations. Here, Psalm 87 really predicts the conversion of all the nations to Christ under this beautiful picture of their birth in Zion. So Zion is, is a type or a picture of the, the gospel church. Please keep that in mind as we, as we go through this chapter. And this psalm reminds us that, that Zion, the city of God, the people of God, will be made up of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And it's a wonderful reminder. Remember, it's a song written by the, the sons of, of Korah who would sit at the temple and watch the people come through the, the gates to worship Yahweh. What a wonderful privilege that must have been. And they wrote these songs, very joyful songs, about people coming to Christ, coming to, to faith in the true and, and the living God. So this song reminds us of the conversion of all the nations that John Piper was speaking about in his book. And it reminds us how glorious the, the church is in God's eyes and why. And we're going to be looking at that this morning. So the context here, remember Zion is the hill in Jerusalem where the temple was built upon. The temple in Jerusalem was always designed to be the main place of worship. In the New Testament, Jesus himself gives us some insights into the very purpose of the, of the temple. Um, in Mark chapter 11, remember when Jesus was, 
was enraged. He was angry to see the money changers turning the house of God into a place of, of merchandise. And Jesus, in his, in his holy anger, he takes out his whip and in his, in his righteous anger, he drives out the, the money changers. But he says in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, Jesus said, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So this was always the purpose for the, the temple. The temple was not just a place for the Jewish people. It was not just a place where the, the Israelites would come and worship. It was a place where all the peoples of all the, the nations would converge to worship the true and the living God. But we know that as Jesus ministered during his life, he provoked the, the, the Pharisees because they were so much attached to this temple, it became an idol, unfortunately. And rather than worshiping the true and living God, they, they worshiped the, the religion and they worshiped all the rituals as we saw in, in Matthew chapter 23. But Jesus told the Pharisees that, that he would destroy the temple and in three days he would raise it up again. Of course, he was talking about himself and he was identifying himself as the, the true temple. Something greater, he said, than the temple is here. And he was talking about himself. He was talking about the fact that in himself, he would fulfill everything that the, that the temple stood for, especially the place. Remember before in the Old Testament, people had to come to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. That was the place, the only designated place where they could make a sacrifice to God. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, he's saying to the disciples, he's saying to the people, I'm greater than that. I'm greater than that. And in me, all these things would be fulfilled. The picture of the temple would be fulfilled. But for our purposes today, I want you to, to see and to understand how important the temple was for the the Old Testament Jewish worship of Yahweh. It was integral to their religion. And I say that in the past, the temple was the place where believers met God, not today. Um, Kerry and I have been to many temples in India and all of the temples that, that we visited, we have had to take our shoes off to show respect to um, this holy place. And I think this is the same principle when it came to the temple in Zion. It was a holy place. It was a place where people would go to, to meet God. But look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. It says there, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. So notice there, God has chosen to found his earthly temple upon the mountain of Zion. He might have selected other spots. He might have selected other mountains. Why this particular hill? What is so special about Zion? Well, if you study the scriptures, in fact, there's no reason given 
There's no particular reason other to say that it pleased God. It pleased him to have chosen this particular place of worship. This was all in God's plan. It was all by his predetermined will to have selected this place for worship. And his election makes this mountain holy. By his determination, the, the mount was ordained and it was set apart for the, the Lord's use. And notice here, please, Zion did not choose God. The mountain didn't choose God. It was God that chose the mountain. And we see here, really, the truth of the foundation of the church. Remember, Zion is a, is a picture of the gospel-centered church. The church doesn't choose God. It is God who chooses his bride. It is God who chooses his church. This is grounded in his selection. And he wills that the church will be and, and he settles all of the things that she needs. He provides for her salvation. He provides for her sanctification. And he provides for her perfection. It is all in God's will. Look at verse 2. Let me draw your attention to verse 2. It tells us that the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the, dwelling, than all the dwellings of Jacob. And again, we need to ask the question, why? Now, why of all the things that the Lord could love about his temple, why did he choose the gates? I mean, we've seen pictures of the temple, haven't we? And uh, the artists have tried to imagine what the temple would have looked like. And we see the beautiful walls and the, the decorations that are there um, and the, the different paths that are there and even the altar that, that is there. But none of these things, it tells us that the Lord loved more. It tells us that the Lord loved the gates. Why the gates? What's so special about the gates? Now remember, gates were the place where the worshippers of Yahweh would enter. The gates were the point of access to the temple, to Yahweh. You couldn't jump over a wall. You couldn't go through a back door. The only way you could get to worship Yahweh was through the gates. And here we have the, the lovely gates principle. Jesus is the access to Yahweh. Jesus is the access to God. And we know, we know that because of John chapter 14, where Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So right here we have the lovely gates principle. Why God loves the gates more? It's because of the picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus is this lovely gate. He is the one and the only one who has reconciled us to God, the Father. And you can imagine the, the Korahites, these, these sons of Korah. They were the custodians and they would watch over these people from all over the world approach the, the temple. And they only had one access point. So they would sit at the best seats and, and watch the people come in. And I think it must have filled their hearts with, with much joy. 
to see these people from different nationalities, to see these, these pilgrims from all over the world converge upon the temple. Turn with me to Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is another psalm of the sons of Korah. We see here in Psalm 84 some of their, their joy. Look at verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrows find a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. I think they must have had the best job, these, these Korahites. Praising God and watching other people come to praise God. Being encouraged by seeing these people from all over the world worship God. And I hope this morning you are filled with, with much joy I mean, the singing was wonderful this morning, wasn't it? I mean, we were making a melody to the Lord, praise the Lord. And that's what the Korahites were responsible for. They were, they were the musicians of the, of the temple. But notice this morning how many people from different nationalities are with us today. I mean, we just read this morning in Revelation how people from every tribe and every tongue and, and every nation will be worshiping God one day. And we have a little picture of that here on earth at New Life Church. People from different nations, people from different backgrounds, people from different tongues, worshiping the Lord, just like the, the Korahites were excited about. Just as the Korahites received all this joy, we get a, a little taste of it this morning as well. But I want you to see this wonderful truth here, that God loves diversity of worship. God loves diversity of worship. This wonderful truth is not just here in the Psalms. We saw earlier on in Mark chapter 11, Jesus himself said, this temple shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. We saw in Matthew chapter 28, the great commission where Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples of, of all the nations. That was his, his last command, not just of some people, not just of a particular ethnicity, but of, of all the nations. And I believe when the gospel has taken root amongst all the people groups of the world, and the church has been planted in all the people groups of the earth, then our Lord will return. I believe that. We see that in Matthew 24. So the commandment that the Lord gives us is, not just something he invented in Matthew chapter 28 to keep us busy. Well, I'm leaving now. What can I get my church to do? This was a plan that the Lord had right from the, the Old Testament, right from Genesis, to bring a people to himself from all the nations. And when all these people are gathered from all the corners of the earth, our Lord will return. So this mission that the Lord has given us is not just something to keep us busy. This has been his purpose. This has been his plan all along. This great commission is not a suggestion. It's a command. 
that the Lord has given us, and it's a privilege that we have to be part of this. God loves diversity of worship. This morning when I read the quote from John Piper, he said, missions exist because worship doesn't. This is our missions emphasis month. And we're putting a lot of emphasis on missions. But I think what he says is true. Missions exist because worship doesn't. There are people all around the world who do not know Jesus. There are people all around the world who are not worshiping Jesus. And that's why we're on a mission. That's why he has given us this great commission. So that we would go and tell people about Jesus. You know, when Kerry and I were in India, maybe, maybe three years ago, four years ago maybe, we visited a, a friend who was sick in hospital and we went and prayed with him. And next to him was an older man who wasn't doing very well. And we asked him if we could pray for him. We said, Uncle, I'm going to be praying. He was a, he was a Hindu man. Uncle, um, can I pray for you? I'm, I'm going to pray for you in, in Jesus' name. Is that okay? And, and he looked at me and he, and he said, who is Jesus? Who's this Jesus that you're talking about? I mean, this man who was in his 60s, three years ago, had never even heard the name of Jesus. Like there are people all around us who do not know the name of Jesus. I've mentioned to you before what missiologists call the, the 1040 window. And this is a line of longitude and a, and a line of, of latitude that stretches across um, North Africa and across um, Southeast Asia through, through the Middle East. And this is the area where two-thirds of the world's population live. There are estimated 4.6 billion people live in this 1040 window. And these people have little to no access to the gospel. And these people have never heard about Christ and his sacrificial work on the cross of Calvary. And many of them don't have a Bible even in their own language. But we live in the, in the middle of this 1040 window, folks. The Lord has brought us to live in this 1040 window. If you go onto the internet and do a search for the, the Joshua Project, you'll get a lot of information about this 1040 window. Let me give you a few examples of some of the information that's provided there. They tell us that in Russia there are 142 million people. There are 165 total people groups. And 80 of those groups are unreached. In China, there are 1.3 billion people, 517 people groups, 427 unreached. In Afghanistan, there are 33 million people, 77 people groups, 73 unreached. In Libya, there are 6.5 million people, 40 people groups, 28 unreached. India, 1.2 billion people, 2,605 people groups, 2,338 unreached. 
When Jesus gave this great commission in, in Matthew 28, he wasn't giving us a job to do that couldn't be accomplished. Folks, he gave us this great commission with an enormous foundation of certainty. When we looked at Matthew 28, we saw Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Go therefore. There is this, this certainty. There is this foundation that the Lord has laid for us. We don't have to be intimidated or afraid by these numbers. We are here. The Lord has brought us to live in the heart of the 1040 window. Is that a coincidence? Has the Lord brought us here just to make money? Or has the Lord brought us here so that we can make disciples of Jesus Christ? Look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Have confidence, folks. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Just think of that picture for a moment. This is... This is hell which has gates around her. This is not heaven that has gates around her and, and hell trying to attack heaven. This is, this is hell which is trying to defend herself with these, with these gates. And it is the church that is on the offensive. The church that is attacking. And it is the church that is prevailing. And it is hell that is crumbling. It is hell that will be destroyed and will not prevail against the church. We are on the winning side, folks. God has won the victory through His Son, Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, verse, verse 14, verse 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And we have that wonderful privilege and responsibility of being involved in that mission of preaching God's word to all the peoples of the world, the nations. In other words, nothing can stop Jesus and his gospel. Nothing is greater. Nothing is more powerful. The church will prevail. The church will prevail. Our second point this morning is in verse 4 to verse 6. In Psalm 87, we see this reborn people's principles. The reborn people's principle. So this city of God is not just a city filled with Jews. It's a city filled with the nations. And it's quite striking, isn't it, in verse 4. Look there, it says, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab. Now, that was a way that the children of Israel often spoke about Egypt. So this is poetical language. This is a, a poetical name for Egypt. But notice there in verse 4, who's speaking? Look at the proper nouns that are mentioned there in, in verse 4. It says, I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. That's a capital me, isn't it? 
So who's speaking here? It's God. God is speaking here. Now is, God, is God saying that everybody is going to be saved? No. But what he is saying, that his plan is more than just a meager number of children of, of Israelites who are going to be entered in the, the Lamb's book of life. They're going to be people from all nations that are going to be entered in that book. Look at the rest of the verse. He goes on to say, Philistia and Tyre and, and Ethiopia, all of these, he is going to say, belong in my book of life. I am going to register them at the, the last day. There are going to be people from all the nations numbered among those who are in the book of life. And again, this is a fulfillment of the promise Jesus made to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, isn't it? He said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm sure as a child you, you must have sung that song in Sunday school at some stage. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. That's what it means. Through Abraham, all the peoples, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So God had a plan, and he still has a plan to bring a people to himself. So this mission is right here in the Psalms. It's right here in Genesis. It's right here in Matthew. It's throughout the whole Bible, folks. God's plan and God's design is to bring these Egyptians and to bring these Babylonians and to bring these Philistines and to bring these Sidonians and to bring these Ethiopians and to bring these Filipinos and to bring these South Africans and to bring these Americans and to bring these Canadians and these Australians and these Chinese and these Indians and, and on and on and on. That's God's plan. It's His purpose to bring them in and to number them and to register them among the people of God. Praise God. Notice here, race is not an issue to God. And there's a truth here that we need to learn and listen to. Race is not an issue to God. In fact, God delights in the diversity of worship. He delights in all the cultures of the world worshiping Him. And if God delights in that, so should we. So should we. You know, I'm South African. I lived up in, I grew up and I was raised in that apartheid system. But that's not unique to South Africa. You know, the UK call it the class system. In India, they call it the caste system. In the US, they call it racism. But the Bible calls it prejudice. It's sin, folks. That's what it is. God is no respecter of, of any people. He loves the nations, and He died for these peoples of the world. We read in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 23. That God's purposes were to make himself known in the nations. He says, thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself. And I will be known in the eyes of many nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. That I am the Lord. And so all of us folks, we need to be concerned 
for the glory of God amongst all races, not just our own. It's not an option for us. I read a story about Mahatma Gandhi who lived in South Africa for a while while he was studying law and he was invited to a church there by some people. Mahatma Gandhi was presented a, a Bible and he read the Gospels and he was moved by the Gospels, especially the, the Sermon on the Mount. And he thought, wow, it looks like the Bible has a, has a solution to the problems that we have in India, especially the caste system. And he was intrigued by that. So he went to the church on that Sunday as he was invited, but he wanted to meet the, the pastor and he wanted, to, he wanted to be taught more about the Bible. He wanted to get more instruction regarding the gospel. But when he entered the church, which consisted of white people, the ushers refused to give him a seat. And they told him, go and worship with your own people. Go and worship with your own people. I mean, that church is going to answer to God one day for that prejudice. We pray that that's not true of us as a, as a church, folks, or even in our, in our hearts, where we think that, that because of who we are and the country we come from, we are better than others. The Lord will be known in the eyes of all the nations, as Ezekiel prophesied, and they will know that God is Lord. And find comfort in that, folks. Find hope in that. Even though your friends and families and your loved ones may be worshiping idols or, or involved in all type of, of sinful, godless activity, one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. As far as the, the waters cover the earth, the gospel will prevail. The gospel will prevail. And we have a job while we are on this earth to be stewards of that gospel. Until this mission is accomplished, we are to go. We are to share about the hope of this world. We don't have to become missionaries to, to Afghanistan, folks. Our mission field is right on our doorstep. It's right in your school. It's right in your college. It's, it's right in your work of, your place of, of work. Until all the true worshipers have tasted the goodness of God, it is our job to go and find Him. It is, our God to, it is our job to invite the nations to join in this feast that the Lord has prepared for His children. Look at Psalm 87. Look at verse 4. The word born is mentioned there in, in verse 4. Look at verse 5. The word born is mentioned there again. Look at verse 6. 
It's mentioned there again. So only those who enter through the gates are born in Zion, folks. And the gate to worship we know is Jesus. Remember the context of this psalm is stressing the blessing of being born in Zion. So when this gospel is preached and people are turning to faith in Christ, they are being born into Zion. They are being born again, basically. But look around us here this morning. How many of you have been born into Zion because of the ministry of New Life Church? Because of this faith community or because of someone from our church that has brought the gospel to you. And thank God for that. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Thank God for those who've been faithful with the gospel. And this local church is a means of grace, folks, that God uses for the extension of his kingdom. This is a means of grace. New Life Church is a means of grace. We don't just come to church on a, on a Friday and, and sing some wonderful songs and, and meet some wonderful people. Our Christianity is not just for a couple of hours on a, on a Friday. We come together to encourage each other, to equip each other, to provoke each other to good works so that we can be a means of grace to the nations to the people around us. This is the story of the church. This is the glory of the church. This is the purpose of the church. This is why we exist. That through her, all the nations of the world will enter into Zion. Think about that. The proud from, from Egypt the worldly from, from Babylon, the wrathful from Philistia, the covetous from Tyre, the rich. And all the nations will enter into this city of joy. The people of God glory in seeing the nations bow the knee to God the Father. And in her there is joy. Turn with me quickly to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. The psalmist writes, he says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is, our, this, this, this is what should be the, the focus of our lives. This is what should bring us joy. The Lord who founded the church is our source of joy. And seeing people come to him and worship him should bring us much delight. But is that your experience this morning? 
Can you say with the psalmist that all your springs are, are in Christ? Go back to Psalm 87. Can you say that? I mean, can you relate? Charles Spurgeon, he wrote, the springs of my faith and all my graces, the springs of my life and all my pleasures, the springs of my activity and all its right doings, the springs of my hope and all its heavenly anticipations, all lie in thee, my Lord. Without thy spirit, I shall be as a dry well, a mocking cistern, destitute of power to bless myself or to bless others. Well, can you relate to that this morning? Can you relate to that this morning? Is this true of you? Now, where are you finding your joy? Where are you finding your satisfaction? Is it in Christ? Is it in seeing people come to faith in Christ? Or do you look to your husband? Do you look to your wife? Do you look to your children for joy? Do you look to the world? Do you look to money? Do you look to, to alcohol? Do you look to your job to fill you with, with joy and meaning? Do you look to the flesh? Do you look to the arms of a, of a strange man or a, or a strange woman? Where are you trying to find your substitute for true eternal joy? Well, Christ is the fountain and the foundation of every drop of genuine comfort. And that's why we've gathered here this morning, folks. We are simply the, the pipes that the Lord uses to be a blessing to the nations. We don't just store it up for ourselves or hide the, the candle under a bush. Christ is our fountain and foundation of, of every genuine comfort. And we are to spread these words of comfort, these words of hope and joy to the nations. The people of God glory in seeing the nations come to faith in Jesus. The Westminster, the Westminster Catechism asks the question, and we looked at this a, few, a couple of weeks ago, what is the chief end of man? Well, the answer is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Are you enjoying God? Do you delight in seeing people bow the knee to Jehovah God? Is it your greatest desire to see your children come to faith in, in Jesus Christ? Does that hope bring you joy? Do you enjoy sharing the gospel with those around you? Again, John Piper said in his book, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Are you satisfied in the Lord this morning? Let me conclude with the words of Piper again. He says, if you say that you love the glory of God, the test of your authenticity is whether you love the spread of that glory among all the, the peoples of the earth. Do you love the spread of the glory of God amongst the earth? I've shared this illustration before, so please bear with me. This, the example of David Livingston. He was a pioneer missionary to Africa. He was a man who loved the glory of God 
more than even his own life. He understood the sovereignty of God and he was, he was jealous for God's glory in all the nations of, of the earth. And as a result, he went on God's promise that he has all authority, go and make disciples, and he spent his life doing that. But in one of his visits back to Scotland, where he was from, he was invited to address the, the students at the Glasgow University. But as he, he stood there weak and frail before these, these fit young students, it was clear for everybody to see the, the effect and the, the tremendous price that Livingston had paid living in Africa for all those years. He had contracted more than 27 fevers that had ravaged his body, and he looked gaunt and, and weak. And one of his arms were, were hanging useless at his, at his side because, because he was mangled by a lion. But the core of his message to these young people was, shall I tell you what sustained me amongst the toil, amongst the hardship and the loneliness of my exile? And he said to them, it was Christ's promise. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end. Even unto the end. So folks, I'm, I'm not here today to put a, put a guilt trip on you. I'm here to show you this wonderful promise that the mission the Lord has given to us is possible if we, if we stand out in faith, if we take that step of faith. Christ is with us even to the end. And if we want to make a difference for the glory of God amongst the peoples of this earth, we need to live by faith, folks. We need to live by faith. Now, how are we doing as a church with this mission that God has given to us? If we were to do some assessment, how would we fare as a church, folks? Are we making disciples of Jesus Christ as the Lord commanded us? Are we doing it effectively? Are we doing it enough? Remember, Zion is a picture of this gospel church. And a gospel church that is faithful with the promises is a church that would be blessed by God. We see in the psalm again, glorious things are spoken of thee. It's not talking about God, it's talking about Zion. Glorious things are, talking, are spoken about the, the gospel church. The church that is faithful with this message of hope the church that is faithful with making disciples of Jesus Christ. Are we being obedient? Are we being a blessing to the nations like the Lord wants us to be? The church that does this is glorious in God's eyes. God will use that church to fulfill his mission. And we know one day all nations will cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to you, O God. Folks, we are on the winning side. Let me encourage you again this morning. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. The church is how God makes himself known in this world. And we know that for a fact. There are people around us who have never read a Bible. 
But they will read us. They will read us, the body of Christ, as we, as we live obedient lives to God's glory. And the world can't see God. But when they see us living obedient lives together as a community of faith, they will notice. And then we will have the, the credibility to, to share this message of hope with those that are struggling. You know, I love seeing old photographs of cities before and after, especially those that are here in Dubai and, and Abu Dhabi. And it kind of gives me a better idea of the, the Middle Eastern world so many years ago that Jesus lived in. But think about this for a moment. If you lived in the day of Moses and you wanted to know what God was like, you wouldn't find the, the answers in the temples of Egypt or the sorceries of the Canaanites. The only way to glimpse the living God was to go to the desert. Go to the desert, to an unimpressive group of nomads, Bedouins, called the Israelites. An unseen, eternal God chose to join himself to a ragged group of humans. And it was through these humans, it was through their worship and through their obedience to God's laws in all their rituals and commitment to holiness that the character of God was displayed to the world. And that same thing is true of the church today. Thousands of years later, the apostle Peter would use the words of Exodus to describe the church in the New Testament. He says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. New Life Church, we are the means of grace that God will use to call out people out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I pray that the Most High himself will be established in us as a church. And I'm looking forward to hearing what the missionaries will say to us this week. I'm looking forward to hearing the preacher bring us these, these sermons this week. But this is not just to, to keep us busy or to give us a program to do. This is to encourage us in the, in the work that the Lord has given to us of making disciples of Jesus Christ. That we will live lives that would have purpose, God's purpose, that we would faithfully fulfill the purpose which the Lord has given to us, folks, of making disciples of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer, just as we see in verse 3, that one day, when all is said and done, God will say to us, well done, my good and faithful servants. As verse 3 tells us, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. I pray that it would be true of us. Glorious things of you are spoken, O new life church. Let that be our prayer to the Lord this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. 
We thank you, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup. And we remember your death and your suffering and your resurrection. We remember the terrible price that was paid to redeem us and to reconcile us to God. We thank you for the faithfulness of your son in dying for us. Lord, we pray that we would not live lives that are, are wasted, that we would not waste our lives on the things of this world, and we would not allow Satan to turn our joy into sadness. But Lord, that we would fulfill the purpose for which you have created us, to fulfill the purpose for which you've left us on this earth, to tell people of our great God and to share the hope that this dying world needs. So Lord, we pray this week that you will continue to teach us, that you will continue to bring us more and more into the image of your dear Son. Father, we ask that you indeed would receive the glory from us, Lord, that we would be this means of grace to the nations and that we would hear you say to us one day, well done, my good and faithful servants. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.